Hi, and welcome to the GLOW Podcast. I'm Dawn Rayleigh, co-pastor of Calvary Christian Center and pastor of the Women of Calvary. I have a passion to raise daughters who understand their identity in Christ and equip them to have confidence in who God has made them to be. In that confidence, they glow and lead others into the light and life-saving power of Jesus Christ. Connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Dawn Rayleigh and for all things GLOW at GLOWWOC. As I was flying here, I was on the flight from Dallas to Daytona Beach, and I heard the Lord drop this word in my spirit over the state of Florida. And I felt like it was significant that it wasn't just for a specific part of Florida, but was for the state of Florida. Because I saw this panhandle, so to speak, in the spirit. And I felt like the Lord says, I'm raising up. I saw the the glory of the Lord coming down, but also radiating off the state of Florida. And this is what I heard. I heard the Lord say, Florida, you will impact the nation like a hurricane, sudden and with force. For the Lord will come and pour out his spirit on the state. First the rain, then the winds, then the fire. There is an outpouring brewing in the atmosphere for the prophets are rising out of Florida from the southeast corner of this nation the prophetic unction will be declared for there is a cry that has emerged from the groans of heaven and the rumbling that has awakened the remnant speak and arise to the dry bones speak and arise to the army of the Lord that has been in the trenches of intercession the land has been plowed the harvest is here the the display of my power my love will be put on full display signs that I am the one true God wonders where no one gets the glory but Jesus miracles that are unprecedented but what the Lord has carried in his heart for this hour at this time Florida And the Lord says, I'm raising up. And this is before I knew Pastor Rayleigh had prophesied this is the hour for the daughters. I heard this as I flew in. The Lord says, I'm putting my women in position. I'm putting my women in position in the state of Florida and beyond. The Lord says, this is your hour, daughters. This is your moment, women, to arise and step into who you're called to be. And I just declare and I decree over the state of Florida that the time has come for the prophetic unction where the prophetic voice has been disassembled in, in, the, in the negative realm in the past election. I heard the Lord say, I'm bringing back a credible credibility to the prophet to the prophetic voice out of the state of Florida where it has been there's been this negative ripple effect the Lord says I'm restoring the prophetic voice out of the state of Florida to the nation of America I heard the Lord say I'm raising up an eagle's nest in this house where the prophets will come and get restored where they have fallen out of the nest where they have gotten their eye off of the Lord, but yet they will come back and they will have a time of healing, repairing, and restoration. The Lord says, I've called this a healing nest for the eagles to come. It's a place for the brokenhearted. It's a place for the marginalized. And the Lord says they will come and they will get healed here, then they will be sent out. Some of the most powerful evangelists are yet to come through the doors of this house. Last night as I was praying over Pastors Jim and Dawn, 
I mentioned about the foster care and the adoption and the influence of this house for that. I had no idea before Jesus, I promise you, I had no idea. And they said that's a key part of the heart of this house. What's interesting is I intentionally, because of the prophetic flow that I move in, I do not research churches. I do not look online. I don't read mission statements. I don't, I don't know anything about the heart, the vision, the mandate on purpose because I want the prophetic flow to be clean and pure. But what was interesting is as I was praying that last night, and then I heard the affirmation of that word come through lunch this morning, I heard the Lord say in the midst of lunch when it was being confirmed to me, and the Lord said, you'll prophesy publicly because there's a purpose of private ministry, prophetic ministry, but there's also great value on public prophetic ministry. One of the key purposes of public prophetic ministry is that everyone can get on board. When the vision of the prophetic, and since the word is set forth, it establishes it, and there's an agreement in the house of God you said, it, we agree with it and I felt like the Lord said because they've taken care of the least of these there will never be lack of resources because you've made space at the table there'll never be a lack of provision for the vision It will serve as a model what this house does for the foster care system. It will serve as a model what it does for those needing to be adopted, for the orphans. It will serve as a model to the nation. Because churches are wanting to be an answer, but they don't know how to do it. There's a prototype that's going to come out of this house that others are going to model because they want to change their city. And the Lord says, if you love the orphans, you'll change the city. If you'll take care of the kids, you'll change the city. And I just felt like the Lord says, this will be a prototype and it will be a model of what God wants to do in this time. There's such a prophetic open heaven over this house. And being a prophetic person, it's like I'm getting so many things at one time. I'm like, Jesus, what do you want to release next? Okay. This past September, September 18th through 20th was Rosh Hashanah. I'm aware of Rosh Hashanah, but I haven't been super dialed into it by a leading of the Lord prior to this past September. Past September, the Lord says, pay attention to Rosh Hashanah. Thank you. I'm sorry. I was going to keep you up here and I just realized I was going to go. You don't have to stay, but I will call you back up at the end. Is that cool? Awesome. Amazing, right? Amazing. Amazing. So anointed. This past September, September 18th and 20th, the Lord said, pay attention to Rosh Hashanah. So I, of course, paid attention and the Lord had me begin to study it out. We all know this is the Jewish New Year. It's the head of the year. We all know that. But I felt like the Lord said, take it deeper. Like, look at the teachings that they teach in the synagogues, in the Jewish culture at the time. Like, study it out. And so as I begin to study it out, the statement of the Lord remembers is what began to surface for me. And as I chewed on that statement that the Lord remembers, I don't know about you, but I was like, Lord, but you never forget anything. So what do you mean by you remember? Because if you don't forget anything, that, that doesn't quite make sense. And the Lord says, it's not that I forget anything. It's that things that seemed lost, things, things that seemed broken. I want you to know I have not forgotten any of it. I remember. 
And as Rosh Hashanah took place, he then took me to some teachings, especially in the Jewish culture and in the synagogues. During the time of Rosh Hashanah, those, we, those days that they're actually teaching, they come together, they actually teach on what I love. They talk about that there were women in the word of God that were barren. There was a Sarah, the Elizabeth, and the Hannah. And these women were barren, they couldn't conceive, and they so desperately wanted a child. They so desperately wanted to be able to conceive. And in scripture, each of them ended up conceiving during Rosh Hashanah. And I said, Lord, isn't that just, that's so you. That's so you that you're able to come in a time that the statement is, I remember you. In a time what feels barren to these women that feel like it's past the moment. God's like, oh, I haven't forgotten. Your womb might be barren, but I know what I've prophesied over you. I know what seems lost. I know what seems like a broken promise, but I want you to know I have not forgotten you, Elizabeth. Sarah, Hannah, I want you to know that if I prophesied that your womb will have a child, it doesn't matter how many decades pass, that I am the God that remembers and nothing is too far gone. Nothing is too forgotten. There's not too many years that have passed. There's not too many decades that have gone by that God is not able to do that which he has prophesied. That's the remembrance of the Lord. And ladies, that's what I heard over you today. I came from California to prophesy over each and every one of you for what feels barren in your life. That the Lord said during this past Rosh Hashanah, he said it over our nation, but he said it over you and I as a personal a promise over his daughters, over his kids. And he says, I remember you. I remember the nation of America, but I remember the promises over your life. I remember the promise over what I have prophesied of years come past. How many of you in here? can agree there are some promises that seem broken there are some promises that seem delayed there are some things that seem impossible but God is prophesying over you this afternoon I remember you I don't know about you but I find such a strength and a comfort and an encouragement that God forgets nothing and even when things feel uncertain even when things don't have a surety in the natural, I know that my God has not forgotten one thing. Therefore, if he has forgotten nothing, then I know everything will not only turn out okay, I know that his plans and his purposes will always move forth. I want to dive right into scripture because I want to break down a text that I feel like God is giving us not only a strategy, but I feel like he's prophesying over us this afternoon. Ruth 1, I'm going to be reading out of the New King James, and I'm going to skip a little bit just because there's so much in this text, but I'm going to consolidate it so you get the essence of this portion of scripture, the essence of what I believe the Lord wants to release over you this afternoon. Are you ready? Ruth 1, verse 1, it says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Imelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. And then Imelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Milan and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons 
and her husband. Skip to verse eight. And then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye. They wept out loud and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, say, but Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, and even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. My daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept out loud and then Orpah kissed, say kissed. And, her, and, uh, and to her mother-in-law, and she said, let me say that. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung, say clung, to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods, little G, go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What a powerful text. What a powerful story. What a powerful picture of three women in the midst of a crossroad moment. Here's three women who have lost everything. The promise of the future of financial security was all tied up in their relationship status. Meaning, if a woman was married, she had financial security. If a woman was widowed or unmarried, she did not have financial security. This is before the days a woman could go out, get her own job, pay her own bills, handle her own business. This is before that time. This was her having to rely on a man to cover all her needs. So if you found yourself as a widow, you were incredibly vulnerable. Anyone ever felt like that? You don't have to show your hand. But where you have been in a vulnerable place, because there hasn't been that security, there hasn't maybe been that that financial provision and not only on top of that the trauma and the grief of actually losing for Naomi not only her husband now her two sons and here's these two young women Orpah and Ruth and these are the two women I want to dial in today because I believe they're the crux of what God wants to release here in this house and that is such a picture of here in the midst of trauma of losing their husbands it felt like their whole future was lost this is again what I call a crossroad moment. You know what a crossroad moment, if you look up the definition, it's having to make a critical decision in the midst of a crisis situation. Have you ever tried to make a critical decision in the midst of crisis? It's one of the most difficult things to do when you're in the midst of the crisis, when you're in the hospital room, when you're actually in the ER, when you're in the triage, when you get the bad news, when, when the crisis comes knocking on your door. Have you ever tried to hear God's voice in the midst of the reality of your emotions, of your pain, with the doctor looking at you in the face, telling you a diagnosis? It's in the crossroad moments where you have to make life-altering decisions that change and affect your destiny but you know how difficult it is to dial down to get quiet to hear God in the midst of the trauma the pain the grief the crisis see many of us in 2020 experienced crisis and some people and many people for that matter experienced a lot of trauma 
And sometimes it's very difficult to quiet down the noise and say, but Jesus, what are you saying in the midst of the crisis? Because if we understand how vulnerable we are at the crossroad moments, we have to recognize all the more we must anchor ourselves in the Lord in the crossroad moments. See, it's in the crossroad moments that I'm gonna go as far to say your generational legacy can be affected by the decisions you make in those moments. I'll prove it to you. But so many times we think it's just a decision or, oh Lord, I don't have the emotional capacity to take on one more decision. I don't have the emotional capacity. Lord, I, I can't handle one more thing. God's like, you gotta handle one more thing. Allow the capacity right now in you to be expanded so that you can receive the word of God for the crisis moment, for the crossroads situation. See, here's two young women. They were willing to go with their mother-in-law, Naomi. They were willing to go with her to a foreign place. But isn't it amazing how you can be set in your plan? You can be set to go to even what's unfamiliar, what's uncomfortable. They were willing, because remember, Orpah and Ruth are actually in their home country. They're Moabite women. It is Naomi that's the foreigner. So after losing all of the male heirs in her family line, her natural thinking is, I'm gonna go home because that's where friends and family are. Because it is only through friends and families, compassion and benevolence that a widow would be taken care of. Someone had to open up their home to the widow. Someone had to say, we will pay your bills. We will take care of your car payment, your cell phone bill, and we will even get you Chick-fil-A, right? We, they, she, they had to find that person. They were like, who is my person that's still gonna get me Chick-fil-A? Like, who's gonna do that for me? So here's these three women of a crossroads situation. Naomi makes the decision, I'm going back to Bethlehem, Judah. I'm going to where possibly the potential of provision awaits me. But there's no guarantee. This is before Facebook, social media, internet. She can't let them know she's coming ahead of the time. She's going to arrive in the midst of her trauma. She's going to be carrying her grief with her in hope someone shows her compassion. Anyone relate? Right? And here's Orpah and Ruth, and they're looking at their beloved mother-in-law. And they're in just as much pain as her, but they're like, we love you so much, we're going to go with you. But what does Naomi do? She tries to talk them out of it. And why does she try to talk them out of it? Because she thinks she's going to spare them the unpredictability, the, the uncertainty of what lays ahead for them in Bethlehem, Judah. So she lets this narrative let, go, let, it, let it go out of her. She allows this narrative of grief, pain, trauma to just ripple right out of her. Have you ever been set? to go and follow what you feel like God is putting in you, but yet someone comes and they say, oh, that's not gonna work out. Oh, you shouldn't go that way. Why in the world would you try to do that? It didn't work for me, it's not gonna work for you. It didn't work for them, it's not gonna work for you. Why are you any different? And all of a sudden, that once initial strong conviction to go, you begin to hear the persuasive argument of grief. This is what happened with Naomi. She's incredibly persuasive, but I'm going to take it a little step farther. It's amazing how fear and grief can be incredibly persuasive. Come on, America. It's, a, it's amazing how fear can have a persuasion all of its own. She gave them everything compounded 
upon what they were already experiencing. They were already feeling traumatized. They were already feeling vulnerable. They were already feeling, you know, sad and all the things. And she's saying, it's more bitter for me than for you. Why in the world would you come for me? She's basically saying, I'm worse off than you. Why would you want to stay with me? Why would you want to align yourself with more uncertainty? Both Orpah and Ruth heard the same narrative. Two different decisions led to two different destinies. It's amazing how you can be going through the exact same thing as another person. You're at the exact same crossroads and you have two different responses than those around you. And sometimes you find yourself alone in the middle of the crossroad. This was true of Ruth and Orpah. Here they are, and here Orpah makes a decision that affects the rest of her life. She decides to stay in Moab. She decides to not go to Bethlehem, Judah. And she makes that decision because it's what's comfortable. It's the thing that's familiar. If she wants a promise of another husband, potential family, it makes the most logical sense. And it isn't amazing that sometimes we can forfeit destiny and purpose by what looks logical in the natural. Sometimes we can actually talk ourselves into a place of, but this makes the most sense, therefore this must be the right decision, when sometimes God's actually calling you to have to leave your comfort zone. Because sometimes comfort is actually your enemy in the midst of a crossroad moment. Sometimes it's crisis that will actually propel you to the change that you've been staying in while you're comfortable. Sometimes it's the crisis. If you actually allow the crisis, it's actually what will push you into the new thing. But if you're not careful, when you're in crisis, everyone just wants what's familiar. When you're in crisis, everyone just wants that thing that feels normal. They just are looking for that security. But what if normal shouldn't exist anymore? What if what was shouldn't be what you go back to anymore? What if actually it's the crisis that's supposed to push you to the new thing, but you keep trying to hold on to the old thing, but you keep telling God you want the new thing, but every time you're given the opportunity for the new thing, you keep choosing the old thing. What about if you allowed the crisis to actually push you into the new? See, sometimes I think with 2020, so many of us were just looking to try to get it back to normal. And I love this because my husband said this so many times. I was like, I love that. He goes, come on, let's not over glamorize normal. Like it wasn't that great. <laughs> and when he said that, I was like, that is so true. It, it wasn't that awesome. Because the nation wasn't in revival. There hasn't been a major move of God. So therefore, why would I want to go back there? If a revival is not taking place, then I don't want to be there. If a move of God isn't happening, if signs, wonders, and miracles aren't taking place, why would I want to stay in Moab? Why would I want to go back to 2020? Why would I go want to go back to 2019? I just want to go where the move of God is. I just want to go where revival is. I want to allow the crisis of 2020 to push me into the things of God. I don't want to keep going back to Moab when I've been asking for the promised land. 
See, we keep thinking the promised land is going to be all pretty and shiny and a nice little package. Sometimes the promise comes out of the crisis. But the greatest bait the enemy uses is to position himself at the crossroad moments of our lives and our most vulnerable places. And he tempts us with things like, but no one knows you over there. You don't have any of your friends over there. The barista over there doesn't know your Starbucks order. That's not your gym. That's not your body pump instructor. That's not your grocery store. That's not your kid's school. And we have our little boxes that we like. And we get really comfortable. We get comfortable in the wilderness. Because friends, that's where we've been in America. But the wildernesses of life were never intended to be permanent. The wildernesses were always intended to be places of encounter that pushed you to the promise. What if 2020 happened to actually shake us out of our comfort zone? to push us into the new. But I believe we're in a Ruth Orpah moment where we're making a choice right now. There's a line being drawn in the spirit. We're saying, are you gonna go back to programs and nice services? Or are you gonna be like all in, getting ugly, ugly cry on the altar? I'm gonna stay there until God gets his business done within me. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care about the price. God, I just want you to move in my city. I'll show up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'll get on my face. I'll show up. Why? Because I just need you, God. I'm just so desperate. I'm so tired of being in the wilderness. What if we actually leaned into the promise of God? What if we actually allowed the crisis to produce in us the courage to change? See, Ruth chose courage. Here's a woman that chose what was not promised, not guaranteed, in the midst of trauma, in the midst of pain, in the midst of her own grief. We see a woman literally make a vow, a, com a confession, a commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, that's the most important confession she made. Your God will be my God. Scholars and theologians believe that was Ruth's true moment of conversion. She's saying, I'm renouncing the Moabite culture, the false gods, God of Moloch, child sacrifice, sexually perverted acts of worship. That's the culture she came out of. She happened to marry a man whose family worshiped Yahweh. So she has this opportunity to come out of captivity into a place of freedom. And in the midst of crisis, it's like, do I go back to what's familiar? Or do I stay engrafted into the new family that God blessed me and pulled me out of captivity? But see, crisis, you either choose to go to the place of new or you stay and go back to captivity. See, Orpah chose to go back to a place of captivity because it was convenient. Convenience, one of the biggest enemies of our walk with faith. Because there was nothing convenient about what Ruth chose. The people of God in Bethlehem, Judah, did not like the Moabites. So there was a high chance she was going to experience discrimination prejudice. She could 
very possibly have been ostracized in the society, never being fully accepted. So she was choosing to leave a place where she was celebrated, so to speak, in her people, in her community, she was known. There was a more of a chance that Ruth could get married, have children, all the logical things, everything that was the desire of a heart were more promised to Moab. And yet this woman, even hearing the same narrative of grief that Naomi sputtered out, and Orpah was persuaded by that grief. She was persuaded by that fear. But what did Ruth do? It says she clung to her mother-in-law. She reinforced her commitment. She basically said, you ain't ever getting rid of me. <laughs> and when Naomi realized there was no talking Ruth out of this, on they went. So here they go. And they go to this land. But I want to, before I jump into that place, I just felt like the Lord told me to not stop and not miss this one part. See here, Ruth and Orpah, their physical posture said everything about what was going on internally to these two women. You know, isn't it amazing how sometimes we can be so excited for the things of God and our body <laughs> can represent it. Have you ever been around people that are sports fanatics and they're like, I mean, they just go crazy. They go nuts. They come to church and they're like in the back row and they're like, and you're like, mm, but I saw you at the race, right? I see you like, I'm just using your area because this is like race land, right? I see you when your team wins or when your favorite song comes on, when you get excited about something, your whole body engages. I think our physical responses often very much indicate what's going on within us spiritually. I pastored for 13 years before Sean and I got married and many times I'd have people come into my office, they're like, I just, I just wanna experience God and this is a person I'd seen for the last two months sitting in the very back row, never once opened up their mouth in worship. Never raise their hands, nothing. But I'll, you know, they, they were convinced they would just feel God if they just sat there. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want you to try opening up your mouth. I want a sound to engage out of you. I want you to begin to actually worship God. And then tell me if you experience God. See, there's a physical response that comes in engaging with the presence of God. Well, with Orpah and Ruth, here's Orpah. What does she do? She kisses her mother-in-law. Or Orba kisses and Ruth clings. I think that's such a picture so much of us in America right now. So much of the church right now. What does a kiss represent? A kiss is fleeting, it's momentary. You know, I don't recommend this, but you could probably kiss a lot of people and it's not super intimate, right? You can kiss a lot of people, but there's not intimacy in a kiss unless there's covenant. In fact, scripture tells us so. Hey, Judas, what's up? Remember, Judas kissed Jesus as he betrayed him. See, a kiss is a facade of intimacy. So many Christians come to church and they're singing, they're kissing Jesus. They're at the altar, they might even raise their hand, they're worshiping, they're kissing Jesus. But when the crisis comes, when COVID comes, when a global pandemic comes, when civil unrest comes, when all the real issues come, what do they do? They kiss and they flee. They distance themselves from the bride. They distance themselves from God. They dis do this and the other. But what do the Ruths do? They cling. 
What's a cling represent? Oh, it's like, I'm all in. I'm not going anywhere. For all the moms in the house, you know what a cling is? When that child's hanging onto your leg and they are not moving and you're like, dear God, I just need to do laundry today. And that child's like, I will get your attention. But a cling is intimate. If someone is up in my business, if someone is like clinging to me, I am so aware they are there. There is nothing facade about a cling. See, I believe the Lord is not looking for kissing Christians. He's looking for clinging disciples. I'm going to say that again. The Lord is not looking for kissing Christians, friends. He's looking for clinging disciples. See, I believe we've been in a kissing versus clinging moment. We've been in an Orpah versus Ruth moment. And I think it's so important that we understand that how we're physically responding in this moment to God is everything. Because I believe that what we cling to is what we come into. You know, your legacy is determined by what you kiss or what you cling. See, Ruth clung to, so she was able to come into the things of God. How do I know this? Because Ruth was a woman of covenant. What did Orpah choose? Orpah chose what was convenient, but Ruth chose covenant. Covenant has a price, it will cost you, it's uncomfortable, but when you choose covenant, you'll always see God's redemptive narrative through your line. See, it's amazing to me of everything God did through Ruth's life. I read her story, and I don't know about you, but I just put myself in her shoes. I think about, man, what would it have been like to be Ruth? You know, you have this moment, you've lost your, you first lost your father-in-law, the family's in grief, and then the unimaginable, the unthinkable hits. Then one of the sons, I don't know, it doesn't indicate which one was killed first. There's a second death in the family, and then a third. I mean, talk about a dark season for a family. And in this moment, Ruth makes a decision, I'm gonna go with Naomi. I'm gonna go take care of her, I'm gonna choose covenant. So she goes, and she's in sheer survival mode. Dreams of family, children, all of those things, familiar, left in Moab. And she goes and her whole intent and mission is to just get a meal and food on the table for her and Naomi. She's not in dream mode, she's not thriving. She's like surviving, she's going and she's just getting the scraps in the field. And then this man Boaz, the owner of the field, unbeknownst to her, spots her and says, who is that woman? And he says, allow her to get more than just scraps. Allow her to leave some for her. So she gets a little bit more. She's like, oh my gosh. She comes home, can you just imagine? She's like, Naomi, I got a whole basket. Yesterday I only had a half a basket, but now I have a whole basket of food. And they're celebrating and they're just so excited for a basket. Have you been in that season? 
where you had a half a basket of resources, but then God gives you a full basket. You're just so excited. You just get to make do. You just, you just get to pay the bills that month. You're just so grateful for just the ends being met. And then as the days and the months go on, Boaz allows her to get more and more. And it's just, there's, a, there's an abundance that's coming. And then there's a plan that's made. And Boaz wants to marry Ruth. And he commits to Ruth. Of course, he has to go through a whole process, but it's given. And Boaz, whose name is Kingsman Redeemer, he says to Ruth, I'm going to take care of you, but I'm going to take care of your mother-in-law, Naomi. And I don't know about you, but sometimes your shout for God is a little bit greater. And I think Ruth would have had a loud shout in that moment because not only did she get the most eligible bachelor in the man, he was wealthy, hey. <laughs> and can you just imagine Ruth and Naomi like celebrating in the back room when the proposal comes forth, when the, when the match takes place, when it's confirmed marriage is going to happen. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're taken care of. This is amazing. But it was so much bigger than that. Because when God writes your story, he has a story of redemption that is written all the way through. Because I don't know about you, but this is how I imagine Ruth coming from Moab. And she's just like, when that marriage happened, I just imagine Ruth and her time with God. If she's anything like us women, she's like, oh God, thank you so much. I just came to Moab. I left everything. I was in so much pain. I was in so much trauma. But God, you've healed my heart. You've, you've restored me. You've given me a husband that not only loves me and wants to marry me, but he wants to take care of my mother-in-law, Naomi, as well. God, you're so good. You're so faithful, God. I'm just a Moabite woman that had nothing but God in your goodness and your faithfulness even when what was uncertain you're blessing me I'm just so grateful for what you've done and what did God whisper over Ruth he said I remember you and the Ruth discovers she's with child and she has a son named Obed can you imagine Ruth's excitement, the joy. She's like, oh, I'm just a Moabite woman. I didn't have anything. I came in pain and I came in trauma. And God, I just was looking for a meal. But you gave me a husband. Now you've made me a wife. I thought I left that promise in Moab. And then God, you made me a mother. I didn't think I was going to get that. I was just looking for a meal. And now you're giving me a family. I didn't think I was going to get that. And God whispers over Ruth once again, I remember you. Because then Obed has a son named Jesse. And I don't know about you, but Ruth is like, oh God, I'm just a Moabite foreigner woman that had nothing. You bring me to this land. You give me this incredible man. You gave me an awesome marriage. I'm so blessed to be a wife. Then you made me a mother. And now you've given me a grandchild. You've made me a grandmother. I didn't think I was going to get family. And now you've given me generations. I didn't think I was going to get legacy. And now I'm going to be a grandmother. Oh God, you're so good. And then what does God do? He whispers once again over Ruth. I remember you. 
Because if you follow the bloodline of Ruth, you soon discover that David became the son of Jesse. And we know him as King David, warrior, amazing man of God. And she's like, oh Lord, I'm just a Moabite woman. I came with nothing. I just chose covenant. I thought I had to give up everything. But you made me a wife. You made me a mother. You made me a grandmother. And now I'm a great-grandmother. And my great-grandson is King David. Don't tell me. The decisions you make at the crossroad moments of your life don't have generational impact. Don't tell me that in the midst of crisis, of pain, of trauma, of challenges that are coming your way, that the decisions you make to lose or to let go of the comfort zone, to not choose convenience, don't have a generational legacy or impact. I don't know about you, but I often want to know what happened in the rest of the story. And when you study out Orpah, there's not too much about her in the scriptures. So I started studying out historically. I started reading all, everything I could, and my husband's an incredible theologian, so I'm running everything by him. And in fact, many scholars and theologians believe that when Orpah went back, she married a man from the tribe of Gath, and she had four sons. And one of those sons, we know him as Goliath. So wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me in 1 Samuel 17 that the legacy of these two women came head to head and full circle. That the decision from Ruth 1 produced a generational legacy where Goliath, a part of the Philistines, was the one who taunted the army of the Lord. He was the giant that opposed the things of God. But it was Ruth's legacy, David, that came and defeated the giants in the land. Why is that so important? <laughs> because it's everything for this hour because it's everything about what God is doing in this exact moment in our time here, in our nation, in our world. See, so many times we think that years like we've been in, seasons we've been in that are full of grief, unpredictability, uncertainty, they're, they're actually our enemies. No, 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 they're the thing that produces the giant killer within us. Had Ruth never gone through the crisis, that the giant killer would have never been produced. She would have stayed in Moab and had a really comfortable, easy, convenient life. But she chose covenant, and what did she do? She modeled to her generations to choose covenant above everything else. So why did David know that he could come at Goliath? He said, you uncircumcised Philistine, which means you're out of covenant. He said, I come to you in the name of the Lord, and he defeated Goliath. How did he know how to do that? Because Ruth showed him how to do that. Because Ruth modeled that to him. She said, you choose covenant over convenience. You choose covenant even when it costs you everything you choose covenant even when the giants are facing you you're the giant killer
For too long, women, we have stood afraid, quiet, intimidated. Too many Christians have been intimidated by COVID. Too many Christians have been intimidated in this crisis. I want you to know we were created to be able to withhold and stand in hard times. There is a resiliency in you and it's called Jesus. You better activate the spirit of God within you and break off that fear because the spirit of God dwells within you and it's time to rise up, giant killer. Because I feel a rattling. I feel a shaking in the spirit. I want the worship team to come out. I believe there's a rattling and there's a shaking in the spirit. And God says, it's time to choose covenant. It is time to choose the things that may make you uncomfortable. But if you do not choose covenant, you will stay in captivity. You came to glow, to get free. You came to glow, to encounter. You came to glow, to get shaken up. The Lord wants to shift your kiss to a cling. Do not let the fears of this world become your reasonable argument, but rather let the Spirit of God arise within you and propel you into the things that He's doing in this hour and in this day.